This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg. Grab a stool and come gather round the fire. There are stories to be told and you are among friends. Owen Wolf is my technical producer, Ryan White, my YouTube channel editor and producer. And we are live streaming tonight, audio only. Uh, go to YouTube and search Strange Planet. That's my YouTube channel, Strange Planet. And hit that red sub button while you're there. We are approaching 17,000 subs. The great-great-grandson of the outlaw, Jesse James, is standing by. And he'll tell us about his infamous train-robbing ancestor in just moments, how he faked his death, went on to live to a very ripe old age in the state of Texas, and how he left encrypted maps and clues leading to buried treasure, Templar treasure, perhaps. Daniel J. Duke will stay with us for the full two hours. So sit back, listen for the first hour, and then we'll make the phone lines available to you in the second hour for questions and comments. Just a few programming notes. Next week on The Conspiracy Show, psychic medium Allison Boswell will be here. And this is a conspiracy show first. She'll be conducting a seance live on the air. And I've asked Allison if she can reach out to the spirit of my late radio partner, rock historian, R. Gary Patterson. So make sure you're listening next week. I also want to tell you about a little conference that's coming up. I'll be appearing at Occulticon 2019 up in beautiful Holstein, Ontario. That's Gray County. And it's held at the Mythwood Events Campground, which is about 61 acres. Uh, and it is, by the way, the highest campground in Ontario. It takes place Friday, September the 13th to Sunday, September 15th, September 13th to the 15th. And you can camp out for the full three days. They have wonderful camping facilities, or you can just come for the day. And let me just give you uh, the lineup here. This, this is just a smattering of some of the people. I'll be there on the, uh, the, the well, I'll be there for a couple of days, but I'm going to be presenting on Saturday the 14th. But Victor Vigiani, our good friend from Zealand News Network, one of Canada's top ufologists, will be presenting, as well as Scott McClelland of Carnival Diablo, the oldest traveling circus sideshow in North America. And he'll be performing the Paranormal Show, which is absolutely stunning. Uh, and uh, Alison Boswell, I mentioned, she'll be here next week. She'll be there as well. Christian Decadieu of Paranormal Contractors will be there with, I'm guessing, some of his uh, ghost-busting equipment. This guy has all the gadgets and gizmos. It's remarkable. 
Uh, I mean, he really elevates uh, the investigation and um, remediation of paranormal activity in homes and businesses to a new level. He's got all of the latest gadgets. Steve Santini will be there with his artifacts from the Titanic and other famous shipwrecks, some of which are reportedly haunted. Anyway, uh, you can go to strangeplanet.ca and the events and live appearances page for more information. You'll see Occulticon there. Occulticon 2019. Or just go to occulticon.com and I hope to see you there. Now for my Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash strange planet special thanks go out to my star chamber tier members denny bladell denny blade excuse me i just get choked up talking about my wonderful patreon supporters denny bladell and kirk shamel thank you so much for your continued support go to patreon.com slash strange planet patreon.com slash strange planet and consider Becoming a monthly donor. All right. Are you ready to meet Jesse James' great-grandson? Daniel J. Duke grew up surrounded by stories of lost outlaw treasure. And for more than two decades, he's researched the mysteries involving his family, Freemasonry, and the Knights Templar. And he lives in Texas. Daniel J. Duke, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm fine, thank you, and thanks for having me. My pleasure. First question. How do you know you are the great-great-grandson of the Jesse James? That's a good question. Throughout the generations in my family, we everyone has heard, you know, grown up hearing the stories that we had, you know, the family legend that Jesse faked his death and lived to be an old age here in Texas under the name James L. Courtney. Well, you know, we grew up thinking that. Why would the family lie? But then you, you know, when you're in school or if you see, you know, watch movies or even television, you know, everybody says Jesse James was killed, shot in the back of the head by Bob Ford in 1882. So you grow up wondering, you know, which story's true. And my mother, she wanted to find out once and for all which story was true. She gathered a lot of the evidence. My sister and I helped her throughout the years and over 20 years and my mother wrote three books. Uh, I, my sister and I recently wrote another book. We've got enough evidence to show that, yes, our family legend is true. He faked his death in 1882 and lived to the age of 97 here in Texas. I don't know how old your mother is, Daniel, but she would have been his great-granddaughter. That's right. When did James L. Courtney, a.k.a. Jesse James, die? In the late 40s? He died in 1943. 1943. Now, is your mother old enough to maybe have had memories of him? Yeah, she passed away in 2015 at the age of 68. Ah. She was born a few years, four years after Jesse had passed away. Her only brother, his name was Jesse Wayne Dorset. When he was an infant, Jesse held Wayne on his lap. And, you know, Wayne didn't remember it because he was an infant at the time, but it was just, you know, something we always thought, you know, wow, how lucky is Wayne? (laughs) Right. And do you remember your grandmother? Yes. And they had all been out there. I have photos with my great aunt and my grandfather and some of my great uncles with, you know, out at Jesse's farm with Jesse. There's one photo, one of my favorites, uh, my aunt Judy, my great grandmother Ida, who was one of Jesse's daughters, and uh, Jesse and his wife. His wife was much younger than he was. His third wife was much younger than he was. 
real good lady. Jesse's sitting in a wheelchair. This was the year he died, 1943. He's sitting in a wheelchair with a rifle in one hand, and it looks like a beer in the other hand, <laughs> you know, an old beer bottle. That's one of my favorite photos of him. Now, when you say photos of him, you mean James L. Courtney, who allegedly is Jesse James. So then the question is, how do we know that James L. Courtney, who lived to a ripe old age up until 1943, was the same Jesse James who died in, was it 1882? How do we know? First of all, all the family photos that had been passed down and other other items like his diary from 1871 to 1876, we had a lot of family heirlooms that passed down directly from him and photos that were taken of him. So my mother in the 90s, first we wanted to check the photos. If this legend was true, then his photo should match known historically accepted photos, not only of Jesse, but also we had photos of his mother and of Frank and his stepfather. So we thought they all looked alike. We were ecstatic about that. Sorry, when you said Frank, you mean Jesse's brother. They were Jesse and Frank were part of the James, was it the James Younger? A lot of people call it the James Younger gang. Right. So we took the photos to the Texas Department of Public Safety, which is our version of the state police. And we took it to their supervisor in the headquarters in Austin of the forensic lab. And they verified that, yes, our photos match the historically accepted photos of Jesse and his, you know, and his family members. So then we went on to uh, the Austin Police Department Forensic Photographic Lab. They verified the same thing. Our photos match the historically accepted ones. And from there, we went to a third one, Visionics. I believe they were in New Jersey, but they were world leaders of facial recognition technology. And they had contracts with international airports and others. Highly qualified, they verified the same thing. All three groups agreed that our family photos matched the historically accepted photos of Jesse and his family members. Even like a, our photo of Jesse's mother, she was standing in a yard with a dress on, and that photo matched a known historically accepted photo of Zerelda, who was Jesse's mother, down to the same pattern on the dress. I mean, their faces matched, they were missing the same arm, and they had the exact same dress on. That was a huge break and a, a big break. So we had three highly qualified experts who weren't just experts. And these were some of the top people in their fields, and they verified it. So we went from there to other sources, you know, trying to get as much proof as we could. We went through his diary, for example. His diary had a lot of code written in it, but it also had names of known gang members like Bill Wilkerson and Bud Singleton and people like that. And it, some of the dates in his diary matched on, like when in his diary when he mentioned that he went to Louisiana. Some of the dates, the same time he was there, a steamship had been robbed and also a stage had been robbed. So, you know, there were robberies that coincided with the same time he was in the same area. That could be coincidental, but the names of the known gang members in his diary add a lot to that. And the big one in his diary... Other than the codes and all that, you know, the encrypted messages he had, was he signed it, J. James, in his diary. Right. Who possesses the diary? Do you have it? Does your family have it? We have it, and it's in a very safe place. I'm sure. Now, is the handwriting, has that been analyzed? Are there other documents in the handwriting of the Jesse James to compare with James L. Courtney? Yes. We had one handwriting expert... 
she compared a letter that had passed down through the family, also a di- the diary, and she compared those to an historically accepted sample of handwriting from Jesse, and she said they matched. Hmm. Well, that was just you know one more piece of evidence leaning our way. What about other artifacts? I don't know whether Jesse James used a Colt forty-five or a Smith & Wesson or a Remington. What kind of a sidearm did he have? Do he we know? Different weapons. He went through a lot of guns in his career. When he was a guerrilla, for example, they, you know, they were known to carry, some of them carried six revolvers on them. That way they didn't have to stop and reload. They would just, and you know, they had them tied to a leather lanyard that was attached to them so they could empty one pistol, just drop it and grab another and just keep firing. They had a lot more uh, firepower that way. Mm. But he had gone through a lot of pistols. There's um, Smith & Wesson that was said to have belonged to him. And we have a photo of it, but we don't own that. Another man has it who lived in the same area that Jesse lived in here in Texas. He passed away. His family has it. And right now, I don't have enough to purchase it. So... <laughs> Right. So uh, hopefully one day I can purchase it, because I would love to put it in a museum. Now, growing up, how did your family talk about Jesse James? Because, let's face it, he was an outlaw. He probably killed people. He probably murdered people, I'm guessing. Yeah. Is the family proud of him? Are they embarrassed by them? How do they view your great-great-grandfather? It's divided. The whole family knew the legend. Some didn't want to admit it. They didn't want to talk about it. One of the elderly relatives who passed away about 10 years ago, she burned over 200 of his letters. Oh, I, you no. Know, that, to me, that was almost criminal. Yes. Because just thinking that if the letters had content that were so juicy, it made her burn them. You know, I just really would love to know what, what those letters contained. But uh, so she burned some of those. She kept, thank, thankfully, she kept a lot of the other um, items that had passed down. But um, most of us were proud of it. Well, you know, not it, it was it, it, when you're a kid, it's really something. You know, you think, "Wow, Jesse James." Yeah, but uh, as you grow older and you start reading more about history, you, you, you calm down. <laughs> I calmed down about it, and just you know, it, it's now I just yeah, he was Jesse James. Um, he he was in the war. They he wasn't an angel by any means, but at the same time, he was also viewed as. America, and he's been labeled in the past by different people as America's Robin Hood. Um, you know, he was fighting during during after the Civil War. There were the, the the economy was bad, especially in the South, and he was. You know, a lot of people in the South viewed him as a Robin Hood because he was robbing the, the banks and trains that were controlled by Northern interests. Right. This and, is during the Reconstruction, and there yeah. were Northern troops still in the South. Exactly. Obviously, a lot of bad blood. Uh, and, you know, there were, obviously there were abuses on both sides, but there were, you know, the South still remembers General Sherman coming down and, and burning crops and starving people. And, and so there were, uh, uh, you know, the slavery obviously was, is, uh, you know, uh, was an abhorrent practice, but there were, you know, only 1% of the so- Southerners owned slaves. There were abuses by the North. So, so since you brought that up, let's mention, let's talk a little bit about that. We have about three minutes here before the break. Okay. What what propelled your great-great-grandfather, Jesse James, into a life of crime? Okay, during the Civil War, he, he was too young to fight with the, with the uh, regular army, the Confederate army. So, and, and 
before the Civil War had started, the fighting in Missouri and Kansas had been going on for 10 years before the, the Civil War started. Right. It happened. So, the Civil War know, started before Fort Sumter. It, yeah, it, and yeah. It, was, it was terrible. It got more and more brutal with each year. And then once it, 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 it all came to a peak when Jesse was too young to fight, so he was plowing in his field, in his family's farm, and some Union-backed guerrillas rode onto his farm, brutally beat him, and tied him to the plow and just beat him. And then uh, they rode onto the house, pushed his pregnant mother around. Some accounts say he, she was whipped. And then they hung his stepfather until he, he didn't die, but he had permanent brain damage. So he wanted revenge. He went and fought with... But he found a group that would take him at that young age, and that was Quantrill's guerrillas. Well, at the end of the war, the regular Confederacy was granted amnesty, but Quantrill's guerrillas were denied amnesty. So he tried to turn himself in and got shot through the lung for, for it. Um, he somehow survived. He escaped. And after he healed up, you know, they, they all knew then if you're caught or turn yourself in, you're going to be executed. So... They had a choice, either leave the country or live up to your outlaw name, and that's basically, you know, he, he chose to live up to his outlaw brand, I guess. Um, that he, he, along with the Youngers and several other of the guerrillas, including Frank. And then they began robbing trains. Why trains? Why not banks? Well, a lot of the, a lot of, they, they seemed to have a lot of intel when they when they had a target, there was a they knew it was what it was carrying, or they seemed to. Um, I believe you know the trains could carry more wealth, and I think that's why they attacked them. And they, it seems like it was less risk. Everybody on the train was concentrated in an area, so it was easier to control them, and it was quicker to get away. And you know they could stop the train in a remote area and not be surrounded by a town a town full of people. So it, it, in a way, it seemed a lot safer. Did they did they pick trains that were carrying gold specifically? Sometimes they hit trains with gold. Um, they they robbed some. Sometimes they would rob the passengers, but they would only rob pass. They would check the men's hands, and if the man looked like he had worked for a living, you know, with calloused hands, they wouldn't take his money. Uh, they were only taking money from businessmen and people with desk jobs which would probably include me right now <laughs> so, <laughs> so but at the same time he uh you know they the, at at some some point some of the rob the trains they robbed women would ask for their signatures or their autographs ah so it was almost like in a way there was kind of a rock star you know air about them well america loves an outlaw it's reminiscent of the bonnie and clyde story i mean they were they had their groupies but they were absolutely i mean bonnie and clyde were brutal uh, That's true. They they were just indiscriminate in their killing. However, uh, listen, we'll take a time out, Daniel. We'll come back and continue to talk about your great-great-grandpappy, Jesse right. James and the Lost Templar Treasure, Secret Diaries, Coded Maps, and the Knights of the Golden Circle, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarr. Welcome back. Daniel J. Duke is here, the great-great-grandson of the outlaw train robber Jesse James. And the book is Jesse James and the Lost Templar Treasure. Secret Diaries, Coded Maps, and the Knights of the Golden Circle. Uh, do we know, is there a, a body count for the 
the James Younger gang? I mean, how many, how many people do they kill? Do we know? I don't know. Um, there, I'm sure it, that's one thing, I, and that's a very good question. I never have gone through all the records counting up how many people he killed uh, or, or is claimed to have killed. There's, there's a, I know he, he is said to have been one of the more deadly gorillas during his, all the gorillas were extremely deadly during the you know they they were known to have it's it's kind of strange it was almost like they had manners especially when it came towards women they you know they didn't they didn't bother women uh there's some people who have claimed they had but there's no proof on that um i know a lot of the uh, jayhawkers they didn't seem to care when they rode into a town everybody got wiped out but i have i have heard of other accounts which i can't prove or disprove but they they seem to have manners in in some of their raids. In, in that's a strange way to put it. But at the same time, any man that was of fighting age, they they had no problem killing them. Right, right. Well, there were rules to, yeah. to war. There there yeah. were rules. It used to be anyway. Yeah. Uh, now your your great great grandfather and his brother Frank and the younger gang they were so proficient at robbing trains, particularly in their home state of Missouri, that they. They started to divert train traffic through that state, right? That's true. It got so bad that uh, trains were rerouting and going around Missouri rather than go through it. That must have been costing the state dearly. It, it, yeah, it hurt their economy. And so, how did the governor respond? Apparent. Well, his his. He had under, you know, he was under a lot of pressure, especially from the railroads. They wanted an end to this. Uh, the Pinkertons were involved. They couldn't catch him. The Pinkertons even went so far as to throw a bomb into his mother's house, claiming they thought that Jesse and Frank were there, but I don't know what they really thought. But they threw a bomb in. It blew up his nine-year-old brother, uh, maimed his stepdad's hand, who had already been hung and had brain damage, uh, you know, tore his hand, one of his hands up, and blew his mother's arm off it from the elbow. She had to have it amputated. Um, so they were they were really you know they they wanted them dead or stopped. They didn't care how they did it, and they probably just actually wanted them dead. So uh, the governor was said the way the story goes is that you know he he um, Bob and Charlie Ford. Had, were working for the governor to infiltrate, basically infiltrate the gang, find Jesse, track his movements so that they could put a stop to Jesse. And before that, um, well, before before the the day he was supposed to have died, he um, um, his cousin Wood Height, who looked they they say bore a very strong resemblance to Jesse. He was his first cousin. Uh, Wood Height was also an outlaw. And he had rode with them throughout the years. He was in a fight at the Ford brothers' sister's house. Their sister's name was Martha. Uh, he got in a fight with Dick Liddell and a farmhand. It was some kind of, it seemed like it all spurred, started from jealousy. The farmhand liked, liked, uh, or had a crush on the Ford boy's sister. And Dick, uh, Wood Height was known as a ladies' man, so I'm sure when he came in, he probably swept her off her feet from from the way it all sounds. And there was a fight. There was jealousy. Dick Liddell ended up shooting Wood Height, and the farmhand had died also or disappeared. There's no proof, but he just disappeared. So, uh, you know, 
the farmhand. So um, this was shortly before, April, you know, the first the first week of April when Jesse was supposed to have been assassinated, and you know, it was very it was it was during the winter. It's a cold winter up there. The ground freezes. Perfect way to preserve a body, and I think that's where that the the fake death comes in with in 1882 they had a body he bore a strong resemblance to jesse and they passed that off as jesse but the ford brothers robert ford who supposedly shot your great-great-grandfather in the back guess the back of the head as he was up on a chair dusting a picture that was hanging in his house that's right jesse apparently was quite domesticated he was doing a little house cleaning yeah and uh, so robert ford who had infiltrated he sounds. They sound almost like the Texas Rangers. Uh, I mentioned Bonnie and Clyde earlier. That, you know, because the governor of Texas at the time, uh, a woman. Uh, imagine, you know, back in the uh, the 1930s, uh, a woman, a governor of Texas, mm-hmm. begrudgingly hired the Texas Rangers. They kind of dragged them out of retirement because you know they had a bad reputation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, to go after Bonnie and Clyde and, and just and get them at any cost, really. So was that the situation that the that the governor of Missouri, uh, it was kind of on a wink and a nod, you know, do what you have to do, uh, infiltrate the the James Younger gang and just get it done. Was that the idea? That's the way the story goes. Right, and that that seems like that's what they did. Um, I don't know if Bob and Charlie knew that Wood Height was actually just. I mean that uh, that Wood Height. I didn't. I don't know. If they were involved with the, the, you know, faking of the death, or if they were scared to death, if they thought Wood Height was Jesse, because there were a lot of robberies where Wood Height would claim to be Jesse, or is, or is said to have claimed this. So there's a lot of questions in that. That you know, people say one thing. A lot of historians, when it comes to that point, take a lot of liberties, uh, and there's really not much proof other than hearsay. Um, because nobody really knew what Jesse looked like, so I wonder. Off, I often wonder how much the Ford boys knew. I think they were involved with Jesse. They also knew that was a good chance to get the reward for killing Jesse, and I believe they thought they would look like heroes. And it actually turned against them. I mean, Charlie committed suicide, and Bob was killed years later by a guy who was mad at him, as a, a drunken man who was mad about him killing Jesse. Uh-huh. So uh, it didn't end well for them. I think it. They thought they would look like heroes, and they were actually, you know, just they they did they were known as being the cowards who shot him in the back. So they could have been double agents. In other words, they were hired by the governor of Missouri to kill Jesse James. They fell in with a gang. Who knows? Maybe they became ingratiated with Jesse. Maybe they liked him. Maybe he paid them off. So all of a sudden now, because of some other situation, there's a body. Jesse's first cousin, Wood Height, gets killed in an altercation. And they say, okay, now we have a body that looks like Jesse. So let's just pass it off. We'll, We'll say that we shot him. And no one will be the wiser. We'll collect our reward, and Jesse, you can walk off into the sunset. Exactly. And that's what he did, right? That's true. And also, uh, well, there's a lot of other strange things around that. Some of the uh, police commissioner Craig, H. H. Craig, short. You know, he was a police commissioner, and they're not known for making very much money. Um, shortly after that happened, he relocated to to uh, South Texas along the coast built a huge house and became real close friends with uh, the owners of the King Ranch. And the, the, it was kind of interesting. The owners of the King Ranch 
had a favored quarter horse named Jesse James. Mm. Uh, and there, there was a lot of strange, just strange little things. It almost made me wonder how deep that went on the, um, you know, on around the assassination. How many people actually knew that it wasn't Jesse? Um, I know a lot of people. Most people didn't know what he looked like. He couldn't be identified. That's why one of the reasons he got by with it for so long. And the only people who could truly identify him were his his immediate family and a close group of, of you know a small group of close friends. And back to the uh, when he was said to be you know he stood. They said that he stood on a chair to dust off a photo and was shot in the back of the head. If you've ever been in that room, and you know I've I've visited the house. And it, you would have to be, you, you would have to be a small person to stand on that chair to dust the photo and not have to bend over. And if you were bending over, knowing how tall Jesse was, he, he would have had to have been bending over, and they, they would have had a hard time shooting him in the head. So you know, it, none of it makes sense. Another thing, there's a hole in the wall that they use for the tourist attraction. You know, where the bullet left his head and went through the wall. Well, the body that they examined in the morgue, at you know the coroner, there the the bullet was said to have stayed in the skull. right. No exit wound. I've seen the photographs. I mean, yeah, if, yeah. if you go on to Google, anyone can see the you know now nowadays in tabloid journalism they call it the box shot, right? Where you have the celebrity yeah. in the coffin. There is everyone is I'm mean, not everyone, but many people have seen the supposed box shot of Jesse James laid out in the coffin. Exactly. Uh, so, it, I mean, doesn't that look... Well, you said it's, that's his first cousin. It's not That's not Jesse. It's Wood Height. Yeah. And all, not, there's a lot of other things around that at the coroner's inquest. Well, first of all, before the inquest, you know, his mother, Zerelda, um, they, they brought her by train up to St. Joseph, north of where they lived, to identify the body. She walked in, looked at it, and said, Gentlemen, you're mistaken. That is not my son. Uh, Someone took her out of the room, and she came back in crying and bawling, saying, "You killed my poor Jesse." So I thought that's you know that's a strange reaction. Um, now, where does that testimony come from? Was that recorded in a so, newspaper or by so, a reporter? Or that that was recorded in a newspaper by a reporter, uh-huh. and also the coroner's inquest was with the the entire inquest. You can find that online at various places. Um, when they questioned. The lady, Z Mims, who was said to have been his wife, she was also his first cousin, she was said to have been Jesse's wife. She wasn't, and we don't, she, we don't believe she was his wife. Um, we believe he, she was married to Wood Height. But anyway, Jesse was said to have been missing the tip of one of his fingers from an old wound. And when they questioned her regarding Jesse, the guy who was supposed to be her husband for several years, and they were said to have had children together. Uh, she didn't know which finger would have been missing. She didn't know his age. And there was a lot of other things she just didn't know about. Yet when they asked her about her jewelry, she knew down to the detail how many diamonds each brooch had and you know all kinds of details about her jewelry in fine detail. All right. So well, it just Daniel... seemed odd that she had such a good memory when it came to her jewelry but didn't know a thing about the guy she'd supposedly had children with. Right. She didn't learn her lines, apparently. (laughs) Uh, Daniel J. Duke, the great-great-grandson of the outlaw, Jesse James, and will continue to delve into the Lost Templar treasure, secret diaries, coded maps, and the Knights of the Golden Circle, right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. 
Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Daniel J. Duke stays with us. Jesse James was his great-great-grandfather. So, Jesse, after faking his death in 1882 in Missouri, walks out of the history books and into, was it Marble Falls, Texas? Oh, no, it was uh, Blevins, Texas. Blevins, Texas, sorry. Why Blevins, Texas? He had somehow... he. When he came to Texas in 1871, in his diary, he had a prearranged meeting with a man by the name of Thomas Hudson Barron. That was Captain Thomas Hudson Barron, who was a former Texas Ranger. Um, who was He met him outside of Fort Worth, Texas, and they rode together for a ways, then parted. Um, I remember at one part of the diary, it always, Jesse made camp one night, um, in the evening, he made camp, and then after it got dark, he moved camp a mile away to a different location. He was very cautious, but three weeks later, and that's why I believe another reason why I believe it took him three weeks to get from Fort Worth to, to Blevins, um, he rode into Blevins, Texas, and reunited to Barron's Ranch, the man he had met in um, Fort Worth. So he rode to his ranch, and... He had a, a his saddlebags were full of gold. He purchased 160 acres and built a house on you know purchased it from Baron, who became his father-in-law the, the following October. Um, on October 31st on Halloween, he married Baron's daughter Mary Ellen, and so Baron became his father-in-law, the former Texas Ranger. Um, you know, and he was a well-known Texas Ranger. He was well respected. So there's a a, um, there, for, I don't know how they knew each other. That's another mystery I would like to find the answer to. Um, and I've been searching that for years. There's, it's very hard to find anything on how they knew each other. Did the, did Jesse James present himself to this former Texas Ranger as the Jesse James, or had he adopted his pseudonym by then? Oh, they, he knew. He, it, it didn't say in the diary, but all throughout the family, everybody knew that, you know, Barron knew that he was Jesse James, knew exactly who he was. Why wouldn't he have turned him in or gunned him down? That was his, he was sworn to do so. Well, back in those days, this, he was a former Texas Ranger, so he was retired, but back in those days, there were a lot of, uh, he may have, he may have sympathized with Jesse. He may have been, I really don't know. That's a lot of good questions, but I do know that he knew he was Jesse, and, uh, I know his sons had fought under, uh, Barron's, Baron had uh, he had twenty two children through two wives. Uh, Baron did, so he had um, he had quite a few sons, and some of them fought with different groups in the for the Confederacy. So maybe there was a loyalty that in that light. I don't. I really don't know the answer to that, and I would love to find the answers to how they knew one another. Right. And so, how did he settle on the name James L. Courtney? James L. Courtney was a the Courtney's were related to the James family and there's no denying that there's a lot of records on how they were related they were cousins uh the real James L Courtney was a bugler for the Union army i've tracked him down to different places he uh, married the last i saw of him he married a lady in Kansas after the war and that was it um, you know, I, I, it's like he just dropped off the face of the earth. I don't know if he was killed, if he died. I don't know. 
Uh, I know they were related. I doubt Jesse would have killed him. Um, but he took that name. He took his name. And I thought, well, if you're hiding from, you know, he, he was hiding from people. He didn't want to be caught. He took a new name. What better name to take than the name of a Union soldier? And he even collected a pension under that name. Oh, dear. So, in a way, he was kind of still getting back at them by collecting a pension from them. Right. So there, there was a lot of connections. Um, also, there was a lot of former Quantrill's guerrillas all around him in the Blevins, Texas area. Ah, so he was protected. He was protected. And, you know, another, I mean, who's going to question the, the former Texas Ranger who was well-respected? you know, about his son-in-law. I mean, it just kind of it added a lot of buffers for Jesse. Sure. And um, was it, though, despite the cover story, despite the protection, was it common knowledge in uh, Blevins, Texas, that yes. James L. Courtney was the Jesse James? It, it was common knowledge. All his neighbors knew it. Um, we talked to a lot of old-timers who, who knew the whole story. Why would he go to such trouble to cover his tracks and then let everyone know who he was? The, the only people who knew who he was at the time, a lot of children would, you know, people would, children would hear their parents talk or hear somebody talk, but they kept it quiet. They kept it pretty quiet. Um, the former gorilla, all the gorillas knew, uh, the guys who were former Quantrell's gorillas, they all knew. They all got along. Uh, they didn't celebrate certain holidays and yet, you know, that most people celebrate, but they like July 4th, for example. He didn't celebrate July 4th. He would celebrate July 16th. And that's another mystery. I have no idea why he and the former guerrillas celebrated that date. Um, but there, there was, they kept it secret. But over time, children, you know, children overhear parents talking or their uncle and their father, you know, things like that. And the rumor gets out. But the kids were told that's a secret. Don't you know? And some of these people told us they were they were told by their parents just don't talk about that. Hmm. Uh, all right. But everybody we're, also knew about the gold he had buried around in different places. Ah, uh, we will get to the buried gold on the other side of this break. Daniel J. Duke is the great great grandson of the outlaw train robber Jesse James, and we'll discuss the hidden gold. Oh, there's lots of gold, folks. Wait till you hear this. Coming up next, The Conspiracy Show. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Uh, Daniel J. Duke will stay with us into the next hour, and at that time we'll open up the phone lines and we'll make them available to you for questions and comments. But just sit tight. Uh, and just listen for the um, the rest of the story to unfold before you weigh in. Uh, so your great-great-grandfather resettles in uh, Blevins, Texas, faked his death in 1882, and seems to be protected not only by a former Texas Ranger, but uh, former uh, Confederate guerrilla soldiers who were living around him. Although, despite that, it, you know, it, it was no, it was the worst kept secret that uh, James L. Courtney was, in fact, Jesse James. Now, once he... I mean, did he did he hang up his uh, his pistols for good, or were there other... Was he ever tempted to break the law again? Was there any other... Were there any other crimes committed by James L. Courtney? I know that after... Right... 
actually within a week after the funeral in 1882, which you know we believe was Wood Hike, um, here in Texas, and there was a, a train robbed, and it, the the um, oh the mo was basically it was basically the same mo that the James Gang used. I don't know if it was if Jesse was involved, but there were there were you know I, I always wonder if maybe he had a couple that he just wanted to get out of his system. <laughs> right. You know, a few for old time. I don't know. I don't have any proof that he was involved in that. But Did he only rob trains? Uh, oh, no. Or... He robbed banks, trains, and stages. Ah. And that, as far as I know, those are, you know, the main ones, main things he robbed. He was said to have robbed a tax collector, but that's a legend I don't have any proof of. Uh, an elderly lady was broke. Uh, the tax collector was coming to get the money. It was all she had left. She gave it to the tax collector. Jesse is supposed to have robbed him down the road and brought the money back to the lady uh, with with the receipt that she paid the tax. <laughs> so, you know, there's a, there's a lot of stories like that, which also added to his Robin Hood status. Right, right. But once he settled in Blevins uh, and assumed the name of James L. Courtney, did he ever run afoul of the law? No, there, there's mention in his diary, and this, that's another good question. There's one mention that uh, the sheriff wanted to talk to him, the sheriff in Falls County, Texas, near, you know, which is what Blevins was part of that county, wanted to talk to him as the punishment was worse than death. And I don't know what that meant. There's no records. We could find no records. Shortly after that, he became a deputy in that county. And this was years after he'd faked his death. Right. I don't know what that was about. I have no idea, and that's a very hard... We've, we have looked, we've looked through the county records and can't find anything about that. But we have, you know, we have evidence of it in, in his own letters and the diary. How many children did he have? Oh, that's, that one caught me off guard. I wasn't sure about that. He had, I think it was seven children. I know he had Ida... And several others, and he had he had uh, four, uh, six or seven children. I believe it's six. He had four daughters and two sons, Byron and uh, Willie. Right. And so you're so uh, he died in uh, James L. Courtney died in 1943. How old again was he? He was 97 years old. 97. And uh, the, the obvious, you know. Um, solution to this would have been to exhume him and do a DNA test and compare that to his children or grandchildren, etc., etc. Exactly. Um, so why not? We've been working on that. And we're still working on that. Um, in 1995, they did an exhumation in Kearney, Missouri, to to prove once and for all that Jesse had died in 1882, as history stated. Well, they did. You know, that was their their whole their stated goal was to prove that with DNA and you know everybody's for that it would you know if it were done legitimately it would solve it would solve a lot of questions uh, they they hired the guy they hired to do the exhumation was not a doctor or a forensic scientist he was a law professor and it, he did for he did exhumations as a hobby um, he he dug up he dug up the grave made a big show out of it but in doing so, it, it did it did reveal a few things. Uh, when he dug up the grave, all he had to do 
was bore a small hole into the grave and retrieve a dime-sized piece of bone. But he dug up the whole grave and revealed the casket that he was buried in didn't match the, the casket that Jesse was known to have been buried in. There were male bones, but there were also a woman's bones and women's clothing, remnants of the clothing left behind, buried in that grave. And that grave, you believe, would hold the body of, 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 of Jesse's first cousin, Wood Height? Wood Height. Hmm. Exactly. There was something so, left of the coffin? That's surprising. Yeah, well, see, originally, Jesse was buried in the, uh, at the James farm, at, at his family farm. Well, not Jesse, the right. person passed off as Jesse. And they buried the body in, in the yard of the farm, and in 1902, exhumed the body and moved it to the cemetery. And it was said to have been rotting and, you know, partially rotted the, the casket, which was supposed to be um, a metal casket. But they moved it to the cemetery and reburied it. That was the story. And they did move a, a casket. I think it was Wood Heights. But they... Uh, in 1978, somebody, there was a, a bunch of amateurs with the uh, James Farmer Museum dug up around where that gra- the original grave had been and found a human tooth, a dog tooth, and a hog tooth, and some other animal bones. Well, they saved the human tooth in a Tupperware bowl and just, you know, passed it around. Uh, there's even stories that one of the directors of the farm had given away other, you know, other teeth that were said to have been found. Hmm. So, but a lot of, it gone through a lot of hands. There was a lot of contamination on that. So back to the, the, the exhumation in 95, they dug up the grave. They found all this weird stuff that didn't match anything. And there was a, also, you know, a woman's skeleton in there as well. They couldn't, they didn't, ex- they claim they didn't extract DNA from any of that, that there was none available. So... They also claimed, you know, everybody wondered, if you're searching for mitochondrial DNA, which is passed down from the mother to her children, then why not exhume Zerelda's grave if you're going to do this? Exactly. Get a sample of her DNA. The the guy, the uh, professor, James Stars, who headed this, said, and he was a law professor, he claimed Missouri law did not allow that because she didn't die under mysterious circumstances. There was no such Missouri law. We checked into it. They had no such law. Hmm. Um, the guy, so they got they got a court order to get the, the tooth that was in the Tupperware jar and a sample of hair that was Jesse's hair, so it's said to have been. Well, that was being held by Stephen Caruso, who was, at the time, he's an attorney. At the time, he was the Clay County Commissioner. He, he didn't like the way the whole thing was going. He said it was extremely unprofessional. He said it was sanitized for public consumption, and it was like a tawdry sideshow. And this was their, you know, their county commissioner. Well, he took a hair from John Hartman's head, who was the parks director, and submitted that instead of submitting Jesse's hair. And they tested the hair and said, oh, this matches the description of Jesse. (laughs) 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 Well, then they got the tooth. They couldn't get DNA from the hair, so they got that tooth and claimed the DNA matched it. But there's no chain of custody on the tooth. It had been passed around. It wasn't even found from the grave they exhumed. It was found in the yard of the James farm, and that could have belonged to anybody. Right, right. So there's no proof. They, 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 they hang everything they have on that DNA, on the exhumation in 95, and there is no proof. 
but they claim they proved it, and it's just, that's that's every they hang everything on that. We have more proof in everything we've found than anything they have. We've just got about thirty seconds before okay. the break at the top of the hour. But do, sorry about that. What, no, no, no. This is gold. <laughs> <laughs> and there's more gold, but but uh, why not? Very quickly, why not exhume James L. Courtney? We tried to get an order, and half the family fought it, claiming there was uh, it was violating the sanctity of the grave. Yet in 1976, they exhumed their Jesse's step, our father-in-law, and had him moved to the Texas Ranger Hall of Fame and Museum in Waco. Aha. Uh-huh. So they're kind of, you know, it's it's like, which one is it? Is it violation or you just don't want it? Exactly. Happening. All right. Another hour to go with Daniel J. Duke, Jesse James, and the Lost Templar Treasure. We haven't even started to talk about the hidden treasure, but we will get into that on the other side. This is The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Thanks for hanging out. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Thanks for inviting me into your home, a long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed rec room with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Daniel J. Duke, the great-great-grandson of the outlaw train robber Jesse James, and he is here to talk about lost Templar treasure. And uh, let me just crib here from the the back of uh, this fine book, Jesse James Left Behind, Secret Diaries and Coded Treasure Maps. Working to decrypt these maps, Daniel J. Duke, the great-great-grandson of Jesse James, reveals hidden treasures yet to be recovered as well as connections between the infamous train robber and Freemasonry, the Knights Templar, the Founding Fathers, and Jewish mysticism. Daniel explains how Jesse faked his death and lived out his final years under the name James L. Courtney, see Hour 1. He explores James' affiliation with the Knights of the Golden Circle, a secret society that buried Confederate gold across the United States and shows how the hidden treasures coded into James' maps were not affiliated with the Knights of the Golden Circle, but with Freemasons, the Knights Templar, and the treasure of the Temple Mount using sacred geometry, gematria, and the Kabbalistic Tree of Life symbol, Daniel explains the encoded map technique used by the Freemasons to hide and later recover treasures, an esoteric template known as the Veil. He shows how the Veil template confirms the locations of Jesse James' recovered treasures in Texas, as well as other suspected treasure locations such as the Oak Island Money Pit, and the Victorio Peak in New Mexico. Daniel is, as I say, the great-great-grandson of Jesse James. I think he's proven that just uh, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt. He grew up surrounded by stories of lost outlaw treasures. And for more than two decades, he has researched the mysteries involving his family, Freemasonry and the Knights Templar. And he joins us from Texas. So... Let's talk about the gold. I mean, how much money do we know? How much gold and, and treasure and money did he steal? Do we have any way of knowing? That's a good question, and I don't have the answer to that. Um, he was said to have lodged, 
Well, well are large. He was said to have stolen large amounts of gold in different at different times from trains. One other thing, you asked me earlier what all he he had robbed. I said banks, stages, and trains. He, there's also a legend that they robbed a mule train with, uh, I believe it was 40 mules loaded with gold. And the legend of that treasure is also located on the template. Uh, I believe it was recovered, but that, that was another thing they had robbed. Um, and it, that's a 40 mules, each one loaded with gold. And I believe a mule would be packed with around 75 pounds each. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not. I've heard. I've, I've heard 75 pounds is one number that a mule would carry. You know, especially over long distances. So, right. Right. Yeah. Do the math. I mean, uh, uh, um, I think on another program, I mentioned I was trying to do the math of how much gold. Yes. And I was five times forty. That would be three thousand pounds of gold. Right. And then, but I, I think on an earlier program, I mentioned okay, sixteen ounces, but a troy ounce is twelve ounces. That's true. Right. And then, so you're looking at I'm going to multiply that by in today's dollars by fourteen hundred dollars, roughly an ounce. Uh, yeah, it's just beyond imagination. I think, I think yeah. After that show, I, I remember I I worked that out real quick, and I believe it was twenty. Oh, two! It was like two hundred and twenty million dollars for that one that I that we had talked about. Right, right. Now, did he itemize his robberies at all in his diaries? You know, Not on in this his diaries. No, no. Uh, he didn't itemize anything. I think another thing about the diary. I mean, he had written his. He had signed J. James in the diary, so I I feel certain he felt secure that that you know that wouldn't fall into the wrong hands, but. Um, or if it did, he was also known to be the type, you know, if, if it came down to it, it, it was going to be a fight to the death kind of thing in a lot of cases. So maybe he just knew if they did, if somebody did get the, the diary, it would be over his dead body. Right. Um, so. And so when did we learn, or when did you learn about Jesse James' involvement in Freemasonry and also about these legendary encrypted or encoded maps leading to the treasures. One of the items, along with the photographs in the diary that were passed down through the family, was a treasure map. And the treasure map wasn't the original. He had his own treasure map, and after he died, his son Byron had made a copy of the map. I don't know where the original is, but we have the copy that Byron made. And it had codes in it, odd symbols. It didn't have... You know, like I always expected a treasure map to have kind of like those old pirate maps you see online or on movies, you know, an X marking the spot, and it's, you know, 40 paces from the old oak tree kind of thing. But this map wasn't like that. It had codes in it. It also had geometric figures and a strange drawing that almost looks like a man with a hat. He had the cardinal directions, north, south, east, and west, a drawing of the sun, with a kind of a mean face, and it was shining in in line with several of the geometric figures he had drawn on the map. That was very hard to figure out. The codes weren't so hard. You just substitute the numbers for letters, work with it, and eventually figure it out, because luckily he had also supplied a few letters in the codes which fit the words that it spelled. I think they call that the Pythagorean screed, right? A equals 1, Z equals 26, you know, B is 2, C is 3, right? I think so. Okay, so you could spell out words using numbers, or vice versa, you could indicate numbers with words. Exactly. Also, yeah. in his diary, he had the same codes. 
which always caught our interest because in reading the diary, you could, you're going along just reading normal writing, and then one day, all of a sudden, there's you know a, a paragraph with codes in it, and it was the same type of code. It took a while, but I figured out how to how to work it out, and it wasn't real hard. And, but you know, it it just catches you off guard. You're reading this, and all of a sudden, there's this code, and that just really draws you in. So you had the diary first before the map. We had the di- we had the map and the diary. The ah. the, the map okay. first. The map we had first, that was given to us by my great aunt, who was also in a photograph with Jesse, the one where he's holding the pistol, I mean the uh, rifle. Um, And that was in 1943 when that was taken. But anyway, she gave us the map, and then we we had the diary passed down through another. Um, That's a... There's a lot... There's several more out there, but I don't know who has has them. Several other so, maps. Yeah, well, maps and also diaries. You mean copies of the same one or different maps? Different, I believe different maps. It may be a copy of the same one, but on the diaries, they're different diaries. Ah, different volumes covering yeah, I different... I would love to have a copy of them. Sure. Just to know what they said. So, describe this map. I know that it's a copy made by his son Byron, but describe it. I mean, how much area does it... In, is it one state, the entire United States, all oh. of North America? The one map that was passed down was somewhere in that area, I believe, uh, in Blevins, Texas. Just it's uh, just covering the the town of Blevins. Yes, that just either either the town or somewhere in around his farm on for that one particular map. But uh, see, when I first started this, I thought, oh, and also when he joined Freemasonry, I don't have any proof that he was in it before or while he was using the name Jesse James. I, but I do have proof that he joined. He was a member of a lodge under his alias as a peaceable farmer. He, he had joined a lodge in his area and was a, a Freemason, and that's on record. It's easily verified. Um, the um, When I first started looking for his treasure, I thought, you know, maybe I'll find a saddlebag with gold or a, coin, uh, a jar full of coins and at, at the most. But I couldn't figure out the map or the template, um, and I, had, I don't believe I've mentioned the template yet. No, we haven't discussed the template. This is like a grid. Yeah. Uh, a grid because if you're gonna you're gonna draw an area of land, and let's say that the you know the map isn't discovered or you don't start looking for the treasure for maybe fifty, a hundred years until you know afterwards. That land it could be totally different. There could be buildings where there used to be a farm. There could be, uh, you know, there could be a, a, f- a floodplain where there, there used, to, you know, or a dam, uh, uh, or an entire forest could be erased. So the geographical, um, you know, formations in that will change over time. But if you put a grid over it, that remains constant. Right? That's right. That's exactly right. Okay. So that's the grid or the template. So where did uh, that template came from somewhere? I mean, he where did that knowledge come from to put that template there? Okay. When I first started researching this, I had believed that Jesse was part of a secretive, you know, everybody, had, all these people had said it, treasure hunters and different websites were claiming that Jesse was part of the Knights of the Golden Circle. And they were a secretive Southern group during the war. They were a Southern, uh, you know, for the Confederacy. They were a secret society 
and their their goal during the war was basically to cause trouble for the northern troops. Right. They supposedly supported, sponsored uh, John Wilkes Booth, Lincoln's assassin. I don't know if that's been proven, that's, but that's, that's the claim. That's another story I've read. I've read that too. Right. Um, so you know, they, there's all these there's all these stories about them during the war, and I thought, well, you know, both sides of of both sides in any war are going to have covert groups that burn bridges and slow down troop movements and things like that. So that didn't shock me at all. And uh, But they said after the war ended, the, the Knights of the Golden Circle, which are known as the KGC, they would, their goal was supposedly changed from, you know, do, they, there was no longer a war, but their new goal was to for, get enough money in any way they could to refund a second civil war. And that's that was how, you know, that's explained with the Knights of the Golden Circle and that they buried catches across the Americas, Mexico, Canada, and the United States with that goal in mind. And I thought, well, maybe that's true. I don't know. Uh, so I started researching more into that. And, uh, you know, I'd come across, when you, anytime you're researching the Knights of the Golden Circle and treasure, you'll find this, it's called the KGC template. So I thought, okay, I've got this template. Does it work? Or and if so, how does it work? Um, I believe. Well, it came. This template was first released by a man named J. Frank Dalton, a guy who wrote books for him. Um, I think his name was Orvis Lee Hawk. As in the um, Dalton Gang. Yeah. Well, it, it. There's a lot of claims about J. Frank Dalton, and some of them are insane. They said he was a New York senator. He. They. They claim he was Jesse James. He was also a senator from. Well, Wyoming or Montana, he lived in New York, um, all kinds of, there's, there's all kinds of, of wild stories about that guy. Uh, he, his stories never, they never stand up to scrutiny. Um, there's, I know some good people who believe that story, they're just, they believe it for whatever reason, but it can't, there's no proof, there's no evidence other than hearsay. So my mother debunked that story. Um, and I hate that word debunk. It sounds so negative, but that, that's what happened. Uh, she proved that he wasn't Jesse, and if, if she had written a lot about that in her books. But he had lived for a while in Marble Falls, Texas, in a hotel right across from my great-grandmother. And I believe that's where he got a lot of the information from my grandmother. Uh, he had, he'd been there for quite a while, and they had even spoken um, not my grandmother, my great-grandmother, who was Jesse's daughter, uh, Ida. Well, anyway, I believe that's how he got the template. And the template, I thought, okay, if it works, then it should match some of these spots. But I didn't know it, uh, any dimensions, any scale, anything. So I thought, I, I need to find out where treasures were before I can even attempt at using this template. And fortunately, around that time, my mother had been speaking a lot with a former Texas former Texas Attorney General Wagner Carr. Uh, Wagner Carr sent his driver out to, to show us where several treasures were, and they, those treasures had been recovered. So, and were they able to? They were they able to couple those treasures with your great great grandfather? How, how how so? Yeah. Well, after they had showed us those, and that's a good question. Uh, they showed us the locations. It was two locations and they were supposedly very large treasures. Uh, and I don't have any reason to doubt them. You know, it was a Texas, he was a Texas Attorney General at the, or a former Attorney General. But uh, he, he showed us those. 
And I thought, okay, there's two spots, and I've got that, but it's, I still couldn't get the template to work. Well, uh, at the same time, shortly after that, a man named George Roaming, who was a, a 32nd degree Freemason in Shriner, had uh, contacted us and told us he was an elderly man. When he was 10 years old and Jesse was an old man, George was sworn, Jesse swore him to, an, to secrecy and hired him to move 680 bars of gold, each one weighing about 15 pounds each. Is that the one from the mule train robbery? I, I don't know. I, I, believe, I don't believe it is. I think it's a different one. The, the mule train robbery was said to have been coins, and ah, this, this okay. was 15-pound uh, ingots. Oh, my God. 650 15-pound bars. Yeah. 680 ah. bars, and they were 15 pounds each. All right. So, you know, that that's a lot of gold, a whole <laughs> lot of gold. Yes. Uh, they moved it in a large wagon that was called a dray. It was meant for loot, uh, for moving heavy, you know, heavy loads. Uh, they, they took it about 20 miles. He drew a map for us and showed where it was buried exactly on the map, which uh, he, he asked us, you know, to go out and find it. So... <laughs> We happily obliged. We went looking for it. It we found out it real quickly. It's uh, the the location is beneath a lake on Fort Hood property. The, you know the military base under so, a, a man-made lake. Yes, it was a man-made lake. Ah, and it, that lake was for was the dam was built in 1954. So you know it was after the. Well, after the, the end of the Second War, Second World War, Jesse was already dead. He'd been dead 11 years. Uh, George, um, he, he, he was sworn to secrecy, for, and he never told anybody. He said the other men, the other people involved were all dead. He knew that for a fact, and he thought it could very well still be there. So he showed us the location, but that, even if, you know, even though I'm not going to even attempt it, it trying to, to locate that any you know any further than I already know um, because it's on a military base but it gave me the location a third location of a known treasure site and it fit the template perfectly that was when I was able to use the template and figure out the dimensions and size and you know how all the distances and everything that was the key I needed and it it broke open the whole story I still didn't know if it was KGC at the time, but it also lined up. Jesse's treasures lined up with the other known treasures that Wagner Carr had mentioned or had his driver show us, and it also lines up with the uh, one near Jesse's farm. So I think the one that it lines up near his farm is the one that ties in with the map that was passed down through the family. Right. But there may be other maps, there may be other hidden gold in other parts of the country. Is that fair yeah. to say? Yeah. I went from there. That one template actually makes up, and I found this out over a period of years. It, it didn't happen overnight, but I started lining the templates up next to each other, and it makes a grid system like you had mentioned. And that makes perfect sense to me, because if the, you know, if the topography of the land, all the features in the land, the trees, hills, all kinds of things can change drastically over just a few decades. And especially these days with all the developments popping up, if you have a grid system, you don't have to worry about the topography. You know exactly where it is. Right, right. And it lines up. I started covering Texas with the grid, and then I worked out. I started finding out that it lined up perfectly 
with known historic sites and known locations of other treasures that had been recovered. And that's where Victoria Peak fell into the picture. Let me grab a quick call here. Rudy, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Daniel, uh, if Jesse James didn't get shot in 1882, uh, why did the shooter, what was his name, Ford? Yes. Why would he make up the story that he was standing on a chair hanging a picture? Wouldn't he know that that would make him sound kind of cowardly? That's a good question. It's a great question. And I've wondered the same thing. Why did he come up with that story? All the forensics, they've even had former FBI agents who were gun experts. They knew all about bullets and what they would do. He was supposedly shot him with a forty four. Now, we know at a close range, a forty four is an extremely powerful weapon, and that would have gone through his head. Yet the bullet didn't exit the head. There was no exit wound. It would have gone in at a weird angle. None of it adds up, and none of it works out. I don't know why Bob Ford would say that. I think he was extremely nervous because they were jailed, and I don't think they thought the reaction to the death would be as negative towards them as it was. Uh-huh. So I know he was nervous. They gave different statements, and I think they just came up with some excuse to explain why he was supposedly take his guns off and stand on a chair under a low ceiling to dust a picture. It didn't. None of it made sense. Uh-huh. Okay, thank you. All right, Rudy, thank you for the call. We've got about a minute here, so let's um, we'll head on into a break. Okay. When we come back, we'll get you to sort out what your great-great-grandfather had to do with the Knights Templar, for crying out loud. This was the Holy Order of the Vatican that was supposedly charged with guarding pilgrims to the Holy Land, and, and supposedly they may have found some treasure in Solomon's Temple the site of the first Jewish temple, maybe even Herod's temple, the second temple, and then who knows what they did with it, spirited it away, some say even to North America, to Oak Island off of Nova Scotia. What does all that, though, have to do with the outlaw Jesse James? Well, his great-great-grandson, Daniel J. Duke, is here to explain, and he'll do just that. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Daniel J. Duke is here, the great-great-grandson of the outlaw train robber Jesse James. And the book is Jesse James and the Lost Templar Treasure. About six years before Jesse James, James L. Courtney, uh, died, a gentleman by the name of Milton Ernest Doc Noss... Uh, was in the Hambrillo Basin area of New Mexico, and he was, uh, he was, uh, he was I guess he was on a, a small outcropping. He was waiting to, um, he was scanning the area to shoot a deer. He was hunting. He sat down and he noticed air coming from a hole beneath the rock he was sitting on. He moved the rock, and what did he find, Daniel? He was said to have found a shaft that went straight down into the, the Victoria Peak. And uh, upon further investigation, he, he went down into the shaft and was, he, you know, I guess he had a dim light with him, um, probably a lantern. And he, he had gone, he, he noticed there was a big, a long cavern. Um, it was, appeared to be man-made and that there were, it was stacked, lined with all these bars. He thought it was pig iron for some reason. Uh, the bars were painted 
a dark color. They said painted black. And uh, he, he found a lot of other items in there later, but when he brought the bar out, he had his wife with him uh, when he had done that, and she scraped, she scraped the side of the uh, bar with something and noticed that gold shined through uh, the outer coating. And he said, you know, he was quoted as saying something along the lines of, if that's gold and all that, you know, all, all the other bars down there will be richer than John D. Rockefeller. So uh, uh, later on, he discovered a lot of other uh, skeletons chained. He said to have discovered skeletons chained to the floor. And I can't remember the number of skeletons they said was chained, but it was quite a few. Um, he also found a crown. Yeah, a tiara. Our crown, uh, he also found, uh, I believe it was a sword encrusted with jewels. It, it almost sounded like treasure that belonged to royalty. He also found some documents, uh, some dating back to 1797. That's true. Um, he found a translation of a letter. It was the, the translation was dated 1797, and it was a translation from a the writings of Pope Pius III, who had, he had reigned a short time. I believe his reign was the shortest reign in the Vatican in, that they've got. It was, he, he, he reigned for about a month. It was September 22nd in the 1500s. I can't remember the exact date off the top of my head. Um, but it was in the 1500s, which predated, you know, it, that, that was long before the founding of the U.S. It was long before the KGC ever existed, and that's what started to shed a, a lot of doubt in my mind on the on any connection with that and the KGC. So, so in other words, this this treasure, which was worth an estimated, I mean, something like sixteen thousand bars of gold, uh, each bar weighing forty pounds each, divided by twelve troy ounces, multiplied by fourteen hundred dollars. Uh, anyway. Uh, Three billion dollars at the time, uh, worth an estimated three hundred three billion dollars. Obviously, though, this is not connected to Jesse James, or is that, it? That's I don't believe. Well, I believe it's connected to the same same people uh, throughout the centuries, but it wasn't connected to him directly. If that makes sense. <laughs> well, you're going to help us make sense of that. Okay, so, good. So let's. Uh, Let's say, for example, that this treasure in New Mexico was hidden there by whom? The the, the, the Knights Templar? A lot of people believed there are some that people people tried to attribute it to all types of uh, you know some people said it was a KGC, which it's obviously, in my opinion, it has nothing to do with them. It predates them by centuries. Other people claimed that it belonged that uh, Chief Victorio had attacked enough wagons and other shipments or, or mule trains or something to, to amass that. Um, it doesn't make sense that Victorio, one man in a small, operating in a fairly small area, uh, would have been able to gather that much wealth. I mean, the, the wealth that was said to have been in there, it, it surpassed the amount of gold that the Spanish had taken from the New World back to Spain in the entire time they were doing that. So, you know, that, that was a lot of gold. And another reason it, it discounts the KGC, if their goal was to refund the Second Civil War, there was more than enough in Victoria Peak alone to have done that. So um, there, there was a lot of questions on that. My, I believe it was done by, over time, by 
uh, Freemasons and also the Knights Templar involvement. Because a lot of people, you know, when you say Knights Templar, um, they they had they didn't end in 1307. They continued on. You know, when they were said to have been raided by the French. Right. Um, they went underground. Yeah, yeah. They went underground, and over the years, I believe they amassed that. They they had agents everywhere. You know, other Templar, and I believe groups of them were operating basically around the world or the Western world at least, and also in the New World. And I believe that's where it came from. It was the Templar and the Freemasons. Just a, a postscript on the Victorio um, uh, Peak in New Mexico, and the gentleman that was trying to recover that treasure, $3 billion worth, um, or in excess of 14,000 gold bars weighing 40 pounds each, gold crowns, diamond-encrusted swords, you name it. Uh, as you point out in the book, he, he was trying to sort of in, enlarge the the area of excavation so it would make it easier to get through the tunnels and he he was using dynamite which caused a cave in and so the, 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 he was basically sealed off from the treasure and then later he ends up getting shot in the back of the head by one of his business partners that's right he, they said that, you know he had to go underground because at the time the uh, uh, gold was illegal to own. And he was trying to sell all this. The story goes that he was trying to sell this any way he could, you know, on the black market so he could get some money. And uh, he he kept changing partners. He even left his wife. He, he was so paranoid, he just started, he left his wife, married another lady, um, kept changing business partners, didn't trust anybody. And his paranoia seemed, uh, based on his story, it seemed as it just kept, Increasing and you know his paranoia, and he ended up shot in the head. Hmm. And plus, dealing dealing in the black market, you're going to run across that kind of risk very quickly. I think, especially when there's any kind of wealth involved. Right. And but his wife would continue to try and pursue the gold, except that what happened here? We have another military base coming into the picture, just like Fort Bragg with the with the uh, Jesse's gold buried underneath that man-made lake. What happened with this particular parcel of land? Yeah, well, that was um, the White Sands Missile Range. They they extended their base, and it encompassed that area. <laughs> in uh, 1955. No accident, I'm guessing. I, I, yeah, I, I wonder that, too. <laughs> but he, uh, um, they, they expanded their base. It encompassed that area. It was shut down. You know, nobody could, nobody could dig there or, or recover the gold. His wife, whose name was Babe, she uh, she tried and she took them to court. Eventually, she got permission to go back and try to recover anything that may be there. And it, there was they found nothing. Hmm. Uh, I think it was you know pretty much emptied out by then. Um, and in a way, you know, I can see why she would want that. She thought that you know that was their discovery. She found it, but at the same time, after all the research I've done. I'm, I have to say I'm glad that it was protected, and I, I don't know if it ended up in the military's hands or if it was moved before they could get to it. I don't know how that worked. There's a lot of questions there, too. Um, it, 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 goes, it gets real complicated on some of that, and especially when there's no proof of who, who ended up with it. It's right. kind of hard to, to uh, decide, but I think, I think we both know... <laughs> Uh, I, I, it's almost like I want to say it, but I don't want to say it. But yeah, the military base encompassed the area, 
and the gold was no longer there. Aha. Uh-huh. I think we can connect the dots. All yeah. right. We'll take another time out when we come back. Let's try and figure out then what the connection was between the Knights Templar, even Jewish mysticism, Kabbalah, and the outlaw Jesse James and his hidden treasure. His great-great-grandson, Daniel J. Duke, stays with us for the duration. Don't go away. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Just want to give a quick shout-out for everyone who's hanging out in the uh, live chat on the YouTube channel. Weiwei and American Zero, Not Gord, Ozark Yeoman, Wayne Filtkin, You Betcha, Raz Fitz, Josh. Thank you all for uh, joining us every week. Oh, Baji Kimron, Quiet Storm, 1323. Thank you all. Uh, you're so loyal and faithful. I appreciate you dropping by on the YouTube channel, which, of course, is Strange Planet. Don't forget to hit that red sub button on your way out. We are approaching 17,000 uh, subscribers. All right. Just a few moments remain with Daniel J. Duke. So we mentioned this amazing treasure discovered in New Mexico, now part of the White Sands Missile Range, and you know, then we have we we of course hear about Oak Island, the money pit there off the coast of Nova Scotia. No one has ever been able to find anything, although there are legends and rumors, etc. Some people con- connect that to the Knights Templar. But again, what does this have to do with Jesse? Okay, Jesse being in the the main proof on that that he was involved with all of this was that. First of all, you know, he was a Freemason, and being a Freemason ties him in with all of this, but beyond that, the treasures he buried are located on the exact same template, the veil template, that all the other historic sites and other treasures are located on that tie back with the the Templar, the Freemasons, and the Founding Fathers and the Templar, Um, and Francis Bacon and all those guys that, uh, I mean, I traced this back, well, I'm trying to keep from getting ahead of myself, but uh, his treasures that he buried are located on the exact same template that all the others are, are located on. How would he have known that? I believe when he became a Freemason, he had... he, he I don't know what how, how it happened. Um, I don't have any proof on, you know, how that happened, but um, it hit, all I know is, you know... His treasures were located on the same template that all the other treasures and historic sites are located on. And it's a good question. There's a lot of mysteries still involved that need to be solved. But he, um, he I know he was a Freeman, and all the ties around him and other, other uh, basically, that, that's the quickest way I could answer it without getting too detailed. But all his treasures were located on the exact same you know, template that all the other treasures were located So on. at some point, as a Freemason, he became aware of the location of these other caches of treasure that were left across North America by the, law, the, the, uh, the Knights Templar, who were fleeing persecution from the Vatican. Uh, and they had, I mean, consider, you know, the Knights Templar, they're the ones that started the modern banking system. They had so much gold 
And so then they had to create a place to store that gold, and they became banks. And then rather than carrying gold around, you got a little note saying, this is how much gold I have stored in the bank. And then that became eventually, that be- that was an IOU, that became currency, money. This all goes back to the Knights Templar. So, you know, on all of that treasure, the, 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 if they in fact, you know, put it on uh, ocean-going vessels and sailed it across to the New World and buried it, and uh, that knowledge was then imparted to those that would eventually become Freemasons, and that became known to Jesse. So, in other words, he knew uh, the the methodology behind their their maps, the treasure maps of the Knights Templar. He decided to use the same methodology, the same grids, and in fact, or the same grid system. And then he decided to bury his treasure in the same general in the same locations as some of the other the lost templar treasures yes and well you know he he had proven himself that basically if you look at the templar they had been outlaws as well after 1307 they had you know they had they were very honorable but they had you know they were raided they had a jealous french king and the vatican the pope at the time was basically described as being under the control of the jealous French king, and you know that—that's what started all the trouble. And they, the the, out, the uh, Templar, were basically outlawed, except for in Scotland, who had been. Um, oh, Scotland was in in a lot of trouble with with the Pope at the time. So, and they weren't very fond of the Pope. So, you know, they that was a perfect place for the the Templar to flee. But they were also. Um, uh, Portugal was very friendly with the Templar as well. So, you know, they had a few places of refuge to go, but they they were considered outlaws by, you know, much of the Western world at that time. So, and Jesse, he was considered an outlaw, but he also had a lot of honor. As, as a peaceable citizen living under his alias, he joined the Freemasons, and I believe he proved himself to someone. He had to have, to have been given this knowledge. And being become a part of this. Uh, listen, we'll take a time out, Daniel. We'll come back and continue to talk about your great great grandpappy, Jesse right. James, and the lost Templar treasure, secret diaries, coded maps, and the Knights of the Golden Circle. Right here on the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is the Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarah. Welcome back. Just a few moments remain with uh, Daniel J. Duke. I neglected to mention a couple of people on the uh, the YouTube live chat. Thinker. Hello, Thinker. Yes. And LetterTube. <laughs> I love these handles. I don't know what they mean. Uh, oh, Philip Blair and Bella. I, I miss them, too. Anyway, thank you all. So why why bury the gold and stash it away? It, um, I mean, what was its purpose? If it wasn't, you know, the, the original theory that the golden... Uh, the Knights of the Golden Circle were gonna were going to use this gold to launch a second civil war, but if that's not what Jesse was about, what did he intend that unimaginable wealth to be used for? Well, a lot of people throughout history, especially with with this gold, you know, you couldn't trust a lot of people. You couldn't trust banks. Even back in the you know the early 1900s, people had what that what were referred to as a, a fence post banks. And that they, you could even find, I, I believe it was Sears catalog that even sold them. It was a little, little uh, metal vault that, uh, kind of like a vault, a safe, 
you could attach it to the bottom of a fence post and drive it into the ground and keep your your wealth in a fence, you know, beneath the fence post. Um, a lot of people didn't trust banks. They didn't trust uh, any economic upheavals during, you know, especially like during the Civil War. If your money was in the bank, you probably lost everything you had um, in in a lot of areas. So the best way to, you know, when when you're when you're when you have that much wealth, you can't make it known. A lot of it was secret. A lot of it was also of a sacred nature from the Holy Lands, you know, not just the uh, the temple in Jerusalem, but also from like Timothy Hogan, who's the the current Grand Master of the the Knights Templar, author and lecturer. He had mentioned that the uh, the Templar went in before the Crusades to secure and protect items of spiritual and historical value, along with treasures that had been uh, to, to protect them from the, the Crusades, the war that they knew was coming. And they're basically the custodians of it. So they that was one of the main reasons it started. They started, you know, they had the treasure. They were outlawed. They had to find a place to, to, to put this that was safe. And they wanted to follow. They all, all these people were persecuted, as, as you had mentioned, through, for, for centuries. Different groups, the Muslims, any uh, the Templar, anybody... Of the Jewish people, anybody who didn't agree with the Catholic Church at the time were persecuted. And they were they needed and sorely wanted a place of refuge, a place they could they could live without having, you know, the the new the threat of a noose or the burning at the stake hanging over their heads. That would be America. Yes. And that was the whole goal, the the treasures in, in the in the words of Timothy Hogan, the grandmaster of the Tenth Knights Templar. He said, Daniel Duke has successfully cracked open part of the mystery surrounding the Templar treasure from Jerusalem that had been moved to the Americas to help establish a, establish a free nation. And um, that that says it all. So so did, did your great-great-grandfather then intend for this gold to be discovered by the U.S. Treasury Department and it was to be spent on behalf of all Americans? I don't know. I don't know that what his intention... Well, I know he, he intended to bury it and keep it safe. Some of this stuff may have been recovered to help America. So, we were trying to connect the dots between Daniel J. Duke and the Freemasons and the Knights Templar, but then it gets even more complicated because um, there is this, um, this symbol in, in Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism, the Tree of Life, and somehow that finds its way into Jesse's maps, correct? That's true. What is what did your your great great grandfather know about Kabbalah? Uh, well, I, that was that was a good question, and I had no idea what that you know. I, I had no idea at the beginning. As I started researching, it led me to the writings of Albert Pike, uh, Manley Palmer Hall, and other Freemasons, which led me to Maria Bauer Hall who was the uh, wife of Manley Palmer Hall. Who, he was a famous 33rd degree Mason author and lecturer. But uh, at, throughout Albert Pike's book, Mor- Morals and Dogma, he had mentioned Kabbalah throughout the entire book. Um, and he, he had a, di- a diagram of the Tree of Life. And that's what got me. I started researching more into Kabbalah, and all, these, all the pieces started falling into place uh, perfectly. That led me to... The founding fathers, you know, Mason. I was trying to find a family tree that connects, kind of like a family tree. It connects all these people 
back to its source. And at the time, I had no idea who came up with this. And I, I, it was a, a question that, just for my own satisfaction, I wanted to answer. And at first, I thought Francis Bacon was the guy who started all this. I know he was a genius. He, uh, he was also the founder of modern-day Freemasonry. And, and uh, he, you know, he had ties in with the Rosicrucians, alchemists, and all these other things. He wrote a book titled um, The New Atlantis, and that was basically a, a blueprint for what America was supposed to be. Um, that, but until, you know, I found out he wasn't the guy who started this all. He had connections like a John Dee, who was his mentor, famous um, alchemist, and he was the original 007. It ties back through there all the way. Right, he was the he was Queen Elizabeth the first sort of chief spy and a bit of a yeah. necromancer. And, yeah. yeah, exactly. He was he had it, it, some of these people are extremely amazing just in in their own right, not not including that this organization they were a part of. It was amazing, and you know if if it were up to me, I would list. At least Francis Bacon is one of our founding fathers, just because he's the guy who kind of brought it all together, formed it, and they put it into action. Fascinating. But but Jesse was tapped into all of this too. What a learned man he was. Yes, he he was in, he was deeply involved in this, and it's obvious through just the fact that the treasures he buried that are known to have been buried by him fall on the exact same template, exactly where they should be. That are also tied in with all these other treasures. And going back to the Tree of Life, you know, from John Dee, it goes through alchemists, Rosicrucians, Leonardo da Vinci is even, he's even included in this. And I tied all these people together, not just randomly, they all had personal and professional connections to one another. It goes through them back to Paolo Riccio, who wrote the book, uh, Porte Lucis, which means Gates of Light. That was a translation of a, of a rabbi's work who lived prior to him. And there's a secret map on the cover of that book with the Tree of Life. And the hidden map and the tiles of the floor on the illustration match up perfectly with, with the map, a world map at that time showing the, the eastern coast of the United States, Canada, Central America, and parts of South America. Uh, and that, and then you know, I went further back from him through Maximilian I, the emperor, Paolo Riccio, who who wrote that book and supplied the hidden map on the cover, was also a physician to Emperor Maximilian. Uh, then it goes from them back through different Jewish rabbis all the way to Rashi, who was a favored court guest of of uh, Hugh Count of Champagne, who was one of the founders of the Knights Templar. It's it's almost dizzying uh, in its in its scope, and it would appear that Jesse James was no ordinary train robber. That's for sure. Uh, people can read all about this in Jesse James and the Lost Templar Treasure, Secret Diaries, Coded Maps, and the Knights of the Golden Circle. Daniel, very quickly, how do people get a copy of the book? Uh, InnerTraditions.com. They have they're my publisher. You can get it through Barnes and Noble or Amazon or basically anywhere books are sold. All right, I've linked up to that. Uh, they can click on the name of the book on the uh, the website. Just go to strangeplanet.ca and then find the uh, the page for this program, The Conspiracy Show. And they can click on your name right there, and that'll take you to uh, Daniel's website. Daniel, thank you so much. Great speaking with you again. I really appreciate this, and thanks for the opportunity. I had a pleasure talking with you. My pleasure, indeed. All right, thank you. Back next week, a seance... 
will reach out to my late partner, our Gary Patterson. Owen Wolf, Ryan, uh, thank you, Ryan White, back next week, as I say. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark speak of the light. What I say in a whisper proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.